This week's episode was brought to you by Israel Valar and Brian Kirby. If you too would like to support the whole rabbit or maybe just join our ragtag bunch of tarot magic students, head on over to www.patreon.com slash the whole rabbit, where a mere $5 donation will result in discord access, high resolution artwork and bonus shows chucked at you at high velocity through your internet. Jack the stickers on the other hand, Come in what the ancients call snail mail and will be delivered at no extra cost to you. On this week's show, we discuss rabbits, their mythology, their fluffy fur, their drunken rituals and tricky ways. We discover a similarity between all rabbit mythology and get ourselves wet in the abyssal waters of noon. So jump on in. The water's great. Kick back, relax your jollies. Thank you and enjoy the show. That's just there, like programming the continuation of government protocols. Got a lot of paperwork to do for your file. Hey guys, I'm not doing any of it. I'm wait, what? (laughs) I said I gotta fill out a lot of paperwork for Luke's file because you're not doing any of it. Well, I shoot all the guys and and bury the bodies. What do you want me to do? I could help bury the bodies. I could help with the bodies, at least. No, you can't do that to yourself, sweetheart. Oh, okay. It's also like a conflict of interest, so. I understand. Yeah, exactly. You guys got a job. We don't. It's like red tape and shit. We're not allowed to let clients, I mean, targets, I mean, clients do that. Yeah. You know, what I, you know what I really like about the extra supercharged $400 executive order to the unemployment? You know what I like Give about that? Yeah, also that. Give me it. But that's I don't a, have unemployment. I don't. I don't want that. <laughs> it's a magic number, according to rabbits. Well, d- Trump kind of knows some of that shit. There's 400 drunken rabbits. <laughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome to the whole rabbit. Where we don't. This is just- the most distracted. What? <laughs> oh, pirate! No. Everybody, shut up! Luke's got to talk. Daddy Luke's talking. Sorry, sorry. Bad timing. Bad timing. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Whole Rabbit, where we don't just trick a bunch of crocodiles into making a land bridge. No, no, we throw a bonfire with a bunch of other animals because. We don't have any real skills, so we throw ourselves into the flame and allow ourselves to be eaten by the wandering prince and give him our blessing to boink the princess his brothers are fighting for. I'm your host, Luke Madrid, and today we're joined by Mari Sama. Hi. Seth the Crocodile Handler. Hey. And the Great Pyre, our resident alchemist. (laughs) How's it hanging? It hangs. (laughs) He's got some delay on that. Yeah, but you can cut it out. Shut up. You're the editor. You can do it. And today, make it work. The mission. And today, the mission is for us to go hard on our little rabbit friends because we've gotten about 67 episodes into the whole rabbit and haven't seriously talked about the mythology of rabbits in like a dedicated episode. So I thought in the spirit of spontaneity, we would just do it this week because we talk about rabbits a lot. Almost as much as, we, well, we probably talk about The Shining more than rabbits, but the, the two things actually tie into each other. And that's that's kind of where I started, is because Set pointed out the Great Mother painting in The Shining, and that's sort of like where the spiral began for me in my research. Set, you like rabbits, right? You're a rabbit guy? Yeah. Yeah, rabbits are pretty cool. I guess. I heard you liked rabbits, so... um Yeah, I used to raise rabbits for 4-H, and uh, you get them when they're babies, and... You raise them for like six months and then you take them to the fair and you show them and eventually you sell them off and, you know, they kill them. You know, people eat them. Eat them. It's it's pretty sad. Yeah, there are a lot of like crying kids at the end. Sounds like Charlotte's Web. Yeah, it's kind of weird. You'd have to prove that one one bunny is special and then like every, every year you have to prove it's special. Some stupid magic trick. Yeah, and if it does well enough, it gets a ribbon. Because, you know, you have to show it and whichever one is the best well-behaved and weighs the most gets the prize. Is there a secret trick for making your rabbit weigh the most? Yeah, so, um, I mean, I, I definitely don't condone this. And, it I mean, it's terrible that people did this. But back in the day, people would shove, like, lead up the... Uh, I don't know <laughs> if I'm how much I'm allowed to swear, but they'd shove it up the ass of the rabbit and then they'd weigh their rabbits and... That way. 
I mean, it's terrible. You're like, this tiny rabbit is so heavy and irritated. Yeah. You could just weigh him down with psychological baggage instead, but I guess that's that's the new way. Yeah, just give the rabbit a day job and a family. <laughs> it's like, God. <laughs> it's like they can't even weigh the rabbit because they're too heavy just looking at it. They're like, oh, God. Yeah, just just let him go. We're not even going to sell him. Just let the rabbit, just let him go. And the rabbit just like walks out of the cage and just like looks up and waits for an eagle. No, it's funny that you say that because there's mythology with a rabbit and an eagle. I honestly, I didn't run into that one yet. So I'm glad, I'm happy you're going to bring it up. So to put my money where my mouth is, uh, I looked into Aztec and Mayan mythology first. And because I'm dumb, I don't really understand the difference between the two, except they had a geological separation. But a lot of their mythologies overlap. I know that, that seems to be what happens in the uh, Native Native Americas, because the tribes had a decentralized form of communication. So the tribes that were nearest to each other had similar myths, but they would change the name slightly to fit their dialect. So there's a lot of confusion among the Native American. Like I looked into some of the North American uh, stuff. You did a lot of the South American research. Oh, cool. But it seems to be that when tribes or civilizations are next to each other, that they have a lot of similar gods and goddesses, but they go by slightly different or modified names. And I think a good example of that would be uh, the original Greek gods and goddesses. You have those, but in, in Roman mythology... You have the same basically pantheon of gods, but they have different names. Right. So it's it's but they were next to each other and they were trading together. So, you know, it makes sense for them to ascribe the same. It was this it was a pagan religion anyway. So they just put different names on the deities. So when we're talking about the Americas, especially, there's a lot of like ambiguous names and deities that we're going to have to deal with. And uh, there's just they're they're across the board. Okay, because I learned about this, the Aztecs, when I was in 10th grade, that was probably 20 years ago or so. Maybe that's probably exaggerating, probably closer to like 17 years. But I also learned about these cultures, uh, like, like separated in time. And when I was researching this, my sources would make reference to both the Mayan and the Aztec myths almost interchangeably. And because some of these myths come from the Aztec and the Mayan calendars, respectively, yeah, you're right. Those myths do play into each other in a really interesting way. But even more interesting is that the motifs of the rabbit seem to extend across continents, across cultures, because there's stuff in the Japanese and the Chinese and the Mayan and the American that's all the same. And that's, you know, that's what's really cool about it. So just to get started, most of the information I have about the Aztec is gleaned from the Codex Barbonicus, a text that was created shortly following or maybe just prior to the invasion of the Spanish. So to begin, we have to start with Xochi. She was the goddess of flowers, which included agave or what they called magui. A root or sap uh, is then fermented to become polka. And it's a prototypical form of tequila. The tapestry of mythologies related to this plant seem to encode a wisdom about maturity, time, indulgence, bad decisions, and their dubious relationship to fun. For starters, if you were a youngster and you were caught drinking polka, one of the punishments was being strangled to death. Whoa. It was generally understood that youngsters were not possessed of the self-control to indulge in this stuff. Yeah, I mean, we don't really treat it much differently today either, though. No. I mean, we don't strangle people, but we'll fucking throw them in jail. It's been a long time since I had this conversation. But when I was a kid, I met someone from El Salvador and he said that the punishment for driving drunk could be death. I don't know if that's true anymore, but that does echo the sentiment of treating drunkenness with a harshness that we well traditionally don't over here. As such... Things do not end up well for Zochi, who, after offering some of the Magui to the king of Tula, becomes unable to control himself and rapes the young Zochi, who consequently falls to become the youthful goddess of prostitution. This echoes the fall of woman from her position of oracular priestess, one who spoke the word of God and the living embodiment of the goddess, one who held within her the secrets of fertility, the earth and its sacred pleasures to the position of prostitute at the hands of a drunken, lustful, mortal king or patriarch. 
So I thought that was important because because of this being forced upon by the king who's drunk, she essentially loses her position as the goddess of flowers. But she becomes, well, at least to me, a sort of daughter of fortitude, Babylon, Sophia type figure who's cast down. Exactly. Yeah, because of her innocence. Like, Well, yeah, because I feel like these figures are often martyrs. Like they have to sacrifice something of their own flesh to be exalted to that position. There's there's all the myths kind of kind of echo this as well. There's another one about Sounds exactly like Eve and the Garden of Eden eating but, the fruit, which was the agave, and then her punishment was the pain of childbirth. Well, it, it's weird too because a woman also is or a woman's virginity is referred to as a flower. Um, you're a, you know, before you're taken, you're a, a bloom, like a blossom. So it's, it's interesting too, cause an apple is a, a fruit of the blossom, mm-hmm. but the agave isn't a flower though. No, but we'll get into that. I do want to mention though, that I'm but, sure the higher initiates notice that the flower is ever blooming. It's not something that's just used up much like how the, the, the patriots would think of it. Or the fountain of youth. That's that's where that comes from. Mm. Is the eternal youth, ever blooming, and to defile it, you know, is to kind of essentially cut the cut the flower. You know what I mean? Like, mm. and once the flower dies it, and it's fertilized, it produces fruit. The apple. Well, the more disturbing thing is, Zochil becomes the goddess of youthful prostitution also so there's Mm. a there's a key there where if you are violated it sort of sticks with you is that is part of the lesson which is probably why it's the punishment can be death for getting drunk on polka because it carries with it such a strong risk of hurting the innocent and she and i see how you're relating her to babylon i'm really into the babylon thing i guess you could say the one who's destined to take her place is the goddess of Magui, was the young and beautiful Mehuel, who sat on the edge of a cloud, hidden away in the far corner of heaven, prisoner of her wicked grandmother, the jealous star demon Tsitsimidl. There on the edge of her cloud, in the far corner of heaven, Mehuel sang the tune of sadness, longing, and hope, whose whispers night after night would be heard by the great Quetzalcoatl, the feathered serpent of the intellect, self-reflection, and the morning star. But in his aspect of Ehecatl, the wind, having set his wind to the four corners of the heavens to find her, well, once he did, he couldn't help but fall madly, deeply, truly in love with her, wrapped himself around her in the form of the winds, around her body, night after night, and their passion grew until they became one. Infuriated but helpless, the wicked Tsitsimil pursued her with her army of demons, but Ehecatl lowered Mehuel to earth, where their union would become manifest as the splendorous Magui plant, whose green spires pointed heavenward from both their origin and from which their pursuers would come. When Tsitsimil finds the plant, she chops it and boils it out of rage, feeding her demon armies with the tequila. In other renditions of the tale, Mehuel, as the Magui plant, marries Petactyl, the lord of fertility and healing, who, along with Mehuel, gives birth to the dun-dun-dun, Senson Totochin. The 400 rabbits who are perpetually drunk on the teats of Magui, who's both a plant and their mother, and constantly issues polka, which loosely translates to honey water. These divine rabbits meet together frequently to party and have the unique. They each have unique personages. They each have names and stuff that are very hard to pronounce, much like the other names that I'm sure I messed up pronouncing. But this is the this is how this is how you earn your stripes. You have to stumble over these Aztec and Mayan names. They are so hard. There's something cool that I do want to add about Coexicotl before we move on. Mm-hmm. Is that there's another myth about him in the Moon Rabbit? Really? Mm-hmm. Um, there was a um, a story about him, and I don't know if this it was a spirit or something. Coexicotl was in his uh, earthly form and wandering the mountains, and he came to a point where he was starving and thirsty and pretty much dying. While he was wandering around in his mortal form, a female white female rabbit came to him and offered her body like as a sacrifice to feed him. And apparently he um, lifted her to the moon, into the heavens 
to the moon and and placed her image on the moon so that every everyone could recognize her and her sacrifice for all times. That's so more or less the Japanese one, too. Yeah. And but it's really strange because you mentioned this in the beginning is that this shows up all around the world, but there some of them aren't really related. And this this kind of legend in the Aztec folklore actually does relate a lot to the Japanese one, but they don't really have a historical link to each other. I thought that was kind of interesting that there is a sacrifice of a rabbit to this god. And then later he births the 400 rabbits. All I got to say is that if I created my own Knights of Ren, they'd be called the Senson Totochin because that is the most metal thing I've ever heard in my whole existence. There's 400 okay, well, drunk that's, rabbits. That's your, uh, that's your, that's the army core of the whole rabbit. It's just, yeah, that's like, that's like us when we were watching the Holy Mountain. Woo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we got sloshed, man. Life is stressful. <laughs> It, it's like it, it's it, it checks you though life checks you you're like man i'm gonna drink more but i'm too depressed to go buy more and then you're you're done being an alcoholic i don't know that's a bit optimistic so speaking of which there are actually 400 of these rabbits but i guess 400 is one of those things where to the buddhists like a thousand means like infinite so there's just there's just a lot of these rabbits okay but some of them have unique personages and i'm gonna try and pronounce them because they're very hard coddle two rabbit uh, and what's funny is, is these rabbits, including two rabbit, are aspects of drunkenness. At least that's what the research I found suggested. And I don't necessarily disagree with it. Two rabbit, as he's named, was considered the king of the drunken rabbits and the god of polka, where his mother is also connected to nourishment. Om Tatochli is all about fertility and drunkenness. That's his other name. Which makes one suspect that, like today, many babies are conceived in the libido of uh, boinking on alcohol, basically. It's <laughs> it's this idea that there are, are creations in the world that are born of drunkenness. And then the next one is Makul Tochitli, where Om Tochitli still knew what moderation alcohol was. His brother, Five Rabbit took things a little further. Officially, he is the god of alcoholic beverages, but he also stood for excess and the consequences of excess. Basically, he's the rabbit god of getting smashed and having oh. hangovers. I was worshipping him a few weeks ago. So if you worship him, do you not get hangovers? <laughs> no, she had you worship him to take day. it away. <laughs> Do I remember? <laughs> Please. Tets cats on cattle. The Straw Mirror, another divine rabbit. He's the god of drunkards. And according to this myth, big one himself, too. He's referred to as the Straw Mirror because in this drunken state, you can see as much of... Man, I don't understand this one at all. You can see as much when looking in a mirror made of straw. So, in other words, your vision is clouded in, in the fact that you no longer can reflect on reality. Oh. You can't see anything anymore. You're only stuck inside of yourself. That's like when you pass out, you know, when you're blackout drunk, like I want. <laughs> uh, you know, like when you forget what what's happening or you go to sleep or you just you just keep doing it every day. That's hilarious. Then you can't see the future. You just see when am I going to go to the store? When am I going to how am I going to get money? These are the bums on the street that just that's all they do. That's like in Dr. Sleep when he wakes up outside the train station and he tries to take a swig of the alcohol, but it's gone. And so he's like, dang it. Now I have to not be the straw mirror rabbit anymore. Yeah, okay. he's, he's blinded. He has his blinders on and all he can think about is the mechanic, like the the desire. There's no you can't see clearly. You can't see other people. You can't see yourself. You can't see. That the you know the mirror is clouded. Got beer goggles. Ah, that's it. That's kind of a good one, but Actually, I feel like that was uh, the previous one. Yeah, the first one, and maybe this one. See, they're all kind of they all. It's hard to tell them apart when you're drunk, right? Well, there's 400 of them, so there's they all gotta kind of be alike, you know. He's <laughs> everyone together. So, Cole Hotson Cattle. He's called the winging one, and it's probably just because he's a little buzzed. He's tipsy. He's having a good time. I would imagine that's what he's about. <laughs> A, a bubbly drunk. Yeah. Man, this one is so long. This is like the hardest level of Guitar Hero. Can you try pronouncing that? That's insane. Cole, 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 Hots, 
Kohatsun Coddle. No. Nope. Kohatsun Coddle. No, this one's te. Oh. Teketchu Makuni. Teketchu Minakuni. Te- oh, shut up. Te. Teke. Teketche. <laughs> Teketch. Me. Kau. I think it's Kwan. Kauani. Teketchuani. Te. Catch Maquani. To catch Maquani? So apparently this is the, this this is the drunken <laughs> god of people who would accidentally hang themselves when they were drunk. Uh, I don't know like, of anyone who's actually hung themselves when they're drunk, but it could happen. Like people who are Is like, that the noise you make? Is that the noise you make when you hang yourself? <laughs> 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 Um, but okay. they're also respected as the god of early civilization. Like Toltecatl is the god in the 400 rabbits of earlier civilization. And then there's a god of dance. Tecolatl, the literal translation is squirrel. So he's the god of dance. Imagine oh. dancing squirrel. That's awesome. Like a raving squirrel. That's like when you get drunk and you just hit the dance floor. You just can't contain yourself. You just like. I'm going to climb the walls, man. You just like. <laughs> you just got to go. <laughs> so you only have seven out of 400 so is this like (laughs) tribes or you know no those are just some of the rabbits and the rabbits have different positions too like in some of the myths of mayahuel they're already there in the heavens like dancing about having fun and then in other myths they come about from the flesh that is created from her union with quetzalcoatl and the aspect of air oh i see it's hard to say what. And a lot of my sources for all of these stories would have different endings and beginnings and middles. And it was sort of difficult to figure out what the overall story was. And a lot of reasons that it or a lot of the times the reason that is, is in native cultures. I mean, you might have pictograms or like the Egyptians had hieroglyphs, but a lot of the American natives had oral histories. So they didn't necessarily write down things in their language. And if they could write it, it would be on paper. They wouldn't. Only the Mayans and the Aztecs really carved into stone you know, often enough to where we could read what they were saying, but a lot of it's pictograms. It's really hard to nail down the literary source of any of these myths. And that's why each tribe has their own flavor, so to speak. Did you have some North American tribes you wanted to talk about in their myths? One note I have here. um, So we're moving up to North America now. Yeah. So tell us about Um, the Cree. Yeah. The, one of the tribes that I noted with a rabbit myth that was interesting um, is the Cree Native American tribe. And they were located around Lake Superior uh, on the west side of Lake Superior. And today they mostly live in Montana. The Chippewa tribe was also pretty close to them. So they may have similar myths. They had a cool story about a young rabbit who wanted to go to the moon. And the only bird that he could convince to take him there was a crane and while the crane was taking was flying him to the moon it actually stretched the crane's legs out and from the ride the rabbit was ragged and tired and when he got to the moon he placed his paw on the crane's head and and left a red mark so the lore says that you can see rabbits riding the moon today which is it kind of leads us into the mythology behind the rabbit and how it relates to the moon because there's an image of the rabbit in the moon which kind of explains why so many different cultures associate the moon with rabbits. So I thought that story was kind of interesting. And it also explains why a crane has long legs and a red marking. It's just kind of an interesting aside. Well, there's another myth in the Japanese where his fur gets all ragged and messed up as well. And then rabbit seems to be a companion in most myths. So in this myth, he's a companion to the crane. In the Japanese myth, he's usually a companion to a goddess or something like that. Yeah, you know, he's not really a central character that much. I guess in, he is more in American mythology with Bugs Bunny, maybe Roger oh, Rabbit. Yeah, we'll talk about all that. We'll stuff. get there. That'll be near the end. So because I know all about that, but I know a little. But yeah, bit I less. was reading some of the Native American stuff is really interesting because this the Cree story that I just told you is that's North America near the Great Lakes, so it's bordering Canada. We're in the northern region, so rabbit there is more of an innovator, hmm. and of course they have you know fertility and moon relations in every culture, but. 
if you go further down in the Cherokee tribes and the Creek tribes, the Alabama, and uh, uh, there's so many more. Um, but in the southeastern United States, basically, um, the rabbit was a trickster character. So he would he would try to convince people to do something and, and get something out of it. So, and I know that a lot of people are familiar with coyote as being the trickster in Native American lore, but in the Southeast, rabbit also was a totem of being a trickster. Yeah, you have here written in the notes the Cherokee, the Cree, Alabama. Creek. Oh, Creek. Creek. Cree are northern <laughs> out uh, up by the Great Lakes. So they're a separate. So their rabbit was an adventurer, like a, a pioneer kind of. In the Southeast, he was a trickster. Like how Satan is portrayed or the light bringer, Thoth. Wow, he's a little bit like that in Donnie Darko, isn't he? Exactly. Yeah, that's a good that's a good movie. <laughs> but people are more familiar with Coyote being the trickster or Crow. Some some of the tribes use Crow. Rabbit in the southeast, Rabbit was the trickster, and that's where you get stories like um I mean, you mentioned Bugs Bunny. He's a, he's a modern iteration of this of this lore, but Briar Rabbit is a south is a southern old slave story that they would tell oh wow when i ran across it in the research my mind was like i've never heard of that but then when you said it out loud yes i do Br'er, you say it brer it's not briar rabbit it's brer like brother but kind of Br'er rabbit more like but he's briar rabbit he's a trickster he wants to be your brother but he's a briar he has thorns it's that's an iteration of the native american the native american culture kind of like intermingled with the black american culture which is really interesting because i did read a note that in central africa in the tribal lores and stuff rabbits are tricksters in central africa so it makes sense like the native americans in that area that were exposed to the black slaves they kind of integrated this into like their mythology and it became like in the southeast the the rabbit is the trickster Okay. Not the not the coyote. We're gonna go zero to hundred right now. I think that part of the reason that all the family members in The Shining are rabbits have to do with the fact that a bunch of rabbits are called a colony, and I think that the Native Americans like mm-hmm. <laughs> they saw a connection between the white man, the colony, and how like it's like oh you can have this land over here. Like five minutes there, they're like, did we say that really? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like you can't really trust anything. Like with the like, you can't trust what the colonists are going to say. They're liars. They're tricksters, and they multiply like crazy. Right, yeah. and that's an interesting note because the rabbit comes to you in in an appealing way and wants. And and that's another thing is that rabbits also traditionally um, are empathetic. Like people empath empathize with them because they're small. They're prey animals. A lot of people that feel you know afraid will empathize with them or children are very apt to do that. So it's a good, I guess, self-insert kind of character. Like if you were going to, yeah, if you want to appear kind and gentle and harmless, appear as a rabbit. Right. It's similar to a sheep, but the rabbit is a little bit more active and alert. it can cause trouble. Right. It's a more alert. The sheep almost doesn't even seem like it would know what's going on, even if it does. So that's something else is that they're so sensitive. He's prone to inappropriate behavior, though, and particularly gluttony, carelessness, and overinflated ego. So in a way, it was used as a warning. So that's what the trickster is supposed to show you, like how you can manipulate people and why you shouldn't or why you shouldn't trust somebody that gives you a a really good deal. (laughs) And then the rabbit is also associated with the entity that stole fire and brought it to the humans. So that has to do with Prometheus, which I thought was kind of interesting. He's almost a light bringer. Tricksters can be antagonistic to human beings, but at the same time, they can also bring knowledge by tricking them. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. And we're going to see a lot of the we're going to see a lot of repeating motifs when we move across the sea to China. In fact, it's it's almost frustrating because it seems like we've talked about all these things so far. But it's very similar. There's a lot of similarities. not related. Not, right. Not related. It's just they they happen to appear in separate areas, but they're built into like central parts of the mythology. So in China, and this is very similar to the Indian tale, there's an old man. And in this case, it's a jade emperor. And the rabbit sacrifices his body so that the emperor can eat. He throws himself into the flame, but he's not hurt. In fact, he's sent to the moon 
where he then pounds out the elixir of immortality. In a mortar and pestle, a Chinese medicine. And he does so for Cheng Yi, who is famous for stealing the elixir of immortality from either her husband, the archer Hao Yi, or the Jade Emperor himself. In some versions, she's cast down from the palace for breaking a porcelain pot. In the Gui Kang, she steals the immortality herb from the Western Queen Mother, escaping to the moon, and becomes its essence. Either way, the rabbit, through sacrifice, ends up going to hang out with Chang Yi, who is awesome, and he helps her pound out the elixir of immortality in his mortar and pestle. So this manifestation of the rabbit bearing Cheng Yi's immortality elixir is called Yu Tu or Yu Tu, which means moon rabbit and jade rabbit, respectively. Both Cheng Yi mm. and Yu Tu are central figures in Chinese mythology and are celebrated at the mid-autumn moon festival, which apparently is a big deal. And according to my sources, it's like the second biggest holiday in the whole Chinese bunch of holidays. Right. The companion to the the goddess is constantly making... Also, that he makes medicine. He doesn't just pound the elixir of life. He uh, There's also a myth and in Chinese folklore that he makes medicine for the people kind of giving the gods knowledge of plants and natural healing medicines to the people. He's like a conduit for, for godly knowledge. But once again, a helper or a companion. Correct. He's a companion animal, but it's a way to mediate between the gods and the people. And then if we move over to Japan, we have the legend of the hair of Inaba. And this goes back to the Kojiki, which is said to have been drawn up between like 711 and 712 AD. And from what I can gather, it's the Shinto equivalent of Hesiod's Theogony. And it's an attempt to take all the local legends and records and to dedicate them into one unified text. So this text contains Shinto myths, gods, kami, spirits, and all that stuff. Uh, according to the Kojiki, Okunimushi was the 81st and youngest prince in a family of cruel quarreling brothers. Every single one, including Okinamushi, man, had desired to wed the fairest princess of the land who dwelled in the Anaba region. The 80 other brothers treated Okunanushi with contempt, for he was mild of character and refused to participate in the contentious quarreling between all of his brothers. As a sign of their collective cruelty towards Okunanushi, they forced upon him the burden of carrying their luggage. While the 80 brothers traveled the land unencumbered, they happened upon a rabbit plucked of his fur, exasperated and lying in the road helpless. Pleading for help, the cruel brothers decided to trick the rabbit by giving him bad recipes from 4chan. They told him, wash yourself in the salty seawater and then allow yourself to dry in the wind in the midday sun. Of course, the salty water hurt the rabbit's wounds and only found his skin cracking and bleeding after being dried in the wind and sun. The rabbit lay again in the road, even more exasperated than before. When Okunanushi happened upon the rabbit, he asked the little fellow what had happened. The hare of Inaba was happy to explain that he had lost his hair while crossing a land bridge made of crocodiles. He had tricked the crocodiles into lining up to form a land bridge by exciting them to prove whose clan was bigger, the gator or the rabbits, and he offered to count them one by one as he skipped across their backs. Unfortunately, the rabbit could not contain his desire to boast and before reaching the shore, began to brag that he had tricked the crocodiles and before getting clear, the last one snatched off his hair. Worse yet, when the 80 brothers happened upon him, it only made his fate worse. The kind Okunanushi took pity on the rabbit and told him accurate advice that washing himself in fresh waters and rolling in the soft pollen of cattails would soothe his skin and allow his fur to regrow eventually. At this point, the hair of Inaba reveals himself to be a powerful spirit and bless Okunanushi with being chosen by the princess of Inaba. Brothers, basically, the worthless D-bags would get rejected and they don't really deserve her anyway. So... The blessing works. The princess rejects the 80s, uh, the 80 brothers and accepts Akunanushi as her husband. So there's more to the story. They try and like kill him afterwards. And it just goes like on and on and on and on. But like for our story, that's where like the rabbit figure ends. He basically helps Akunanushi get the hot princess that everyone wants. But I also noticed in the Japanese Zodiac, they replaced the rabbit with the cat. Why do you think so? Well, I feel like I feel like that um, the Japanese had more cats because they were farmers. And they stored a lot of grain and they would use a lot of cats to guard the farm. So they they have a lot of cats there. They imported cats for 
for that position because it's not a big continent. You can't have a dog on your farm. So they use those as the mousers. And there's actually a island off of Japan called Cat Island where there's like a ton of wild cats. What? But they're revered in Japan pretty much because they help the farmers grow food. You're on an island, dude. You don't have a lot of resources, you know. That's why they don't produce a lot of terrestrial meat, like pork, chicken, and beef. They don't really have space. Right. So they're ma- mainly fishermen, and they grow grains like rice. So when they're storing the grain, the cat would protect the food storage from, from mice and vermin that would ruin it. So they revere cats in a way that I don't think inland China people do because they at least could have like grazing land. They could have cattle. They, they could have dogs and stuff like that, but the Chinese people couldn't, or the Japanese people couldn't have, you know, extensive farmlands because they were on an island. So they probably replaced the rabbit with the cat because, you know, maybe they related more to that because I don't think rabbits are actually, I mean, maybe there's rabbits in Japan, but it, maybe they're invasive. I have no idea. I don't know either. Yeah, but they're not, they, in, in Japanese folklore, really, they, in the, similar to the Chinese mythology with changi 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 there's I, I also a ja- right. well there's a japanese company that uses a rabbit hitting up they use mochi and so do the koreans but the rabbit is supposed to make mochi which is food out of rice it's rice cake i did run into that while studying the mythologies that was a motif but, you know if you think about food as the you know, the stuff of life you need to eat to live. There's a Japanese company, a cosmetic company that uses the rabbit and the mortar and the pestle that they see in the moon to represent beauty and longevity and immortality like the Chinese, like the Chinese legend. I don't know why they had replaced rabbits with cats because I mean, oh, well here, I have a note here. The most common explanation is that the the Vietnamese word for rabbit, Mao, Sounds like the Chinese word for cat, which oh, is mao. No way. So that's awesome. So when you mao. say rabbit in Chinese, it's mao. But in Japanese, also that's the sound the cat makes. Like that's the that's the kanji that they use for the cat sound. I hear mao. in Germany the cow says shazu. <laughs> that's way more accurate than moo. I really, really like is. that stuff too, is figuring out like onomatopoeias from different, because a lot of times uh, cultures will take an onomatopoeia from another one and then make a word out of it. You get a lot of like overlap that way. All I know is the cow says Shazu. So moving on to India. In the oh, Buddhist, yeah, yeah it, let's get some food, man. So in the Buddhist uh, Jataka tales, tale 316 relates that a monkey, an otter, a jackal, and a rabbit resolve to practice charity on the day of the full moon. Opasatha, this is called. Believing a demonstration of great virtue would earn a great reward. When an old man begged for food from them, the monkey gathered fruits. The otter collected fish. The jackal found lizards and a pot of milk curd. I don't know where he got that. The rabbit pretty much only knew how to gather grass. So feeling bad about the whole endeavor, threw himself into the fire and and this was meat for the man to eat. That sounds like Cain and Abel, dude. But the rabbit was not burnt. The old man revealed that he was Sakra and touched by the rabbit's virtue, drew the likeness of the rabbit on the moon for all to see. It was said that the lunar image is still draped in smoke that rose when the rabbit cast himself into the fire. The rabbit is believed to be a bodhisattva. So Bodhisattva is like a Buddha that vows to come back until every blade of grass is enlightened. It's like they just a teacher, a teacher. Yeah, they have have something to prove. A tireless teacher. He's a try hard Buddha. Right. And you know, what's really cool is I'm noticing as we go through all these is that the rabbit seems to be elevated to the moon to impress the image upon it for all ages as a as an it's almost like they're giving it an homage because in a lot of these um, traditions, you're seeing the rabbit being sacrificed for a god to sustain or for people to eat. You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. a lot of times people would just eat rabbit because that's the only thing that was around to eat. But there's no nutrition uh, I in think, it. But you know, a lot of times in the old in the Bible and in, in Judaism and Christianity, you talk about goats being sacrifices, but rabbits kind of are the poor man's sacrifice. Rabbits are a 
a very potent symbol of sacrifice, in fact. Well, I found that my replacing the rabbit's head for the goat's head is actually a really unoriginal Egyptian idea of the exact same archetype and goddess. So I did nothing new. It's almost like the goat is the pastoral version of a rabbit. They're the tamed ones that can stay in a field and they produce more meat, basically. But Weird. rabbits are the wild version of something of, of fodder that you would use as a sacrifice. Because mm. you have to sacrifice something to eat. You wouldn't sacrifice your family. You know, unless it was extreme circumstance, but with the rabbit, just provides a nice. Yeah, exactly. But the rabbit provides a nice small sacrifice that you can still do, even if you don't own goats or you don't have a herd, you could go shoot a, a rabbit and still make it the kids sad. I, I mean, I'm just thinking of ancient times and why they worship rabbits like this. And the reason is like they do per proliferate a lot, which is why they're related to fertility. But it's interesting because they're already sacrificed. There's so many of them. Moving on over to Egypt. In yeah, Egypt. Let's see what this is think. this is where it gets I really fell into the rabbit hole here. So in ancient Egypt, it was Unut or Wanet, who, despite her origins as a serpent goddess, was depicted as a woman with a rabbit's head. Dun 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 Babylon. Oh, here's the first iteration of the sexy rabbit meme. Yeah, it's not anything that I created, apparently. Apparently, it's a pretty old archetype, and it relates to... Well, let's get to that. The title she was given was The Swift One, and was worshipped alongside Thoth Dahuti in the capital of Heliopolis. Interestingly, she is said to have been a consort to Osiris or Ra in the form of Wininu. After doing some digging, I was able to make some sense of this. As the mother-slash-consort of Osiris Ra and a primordial serpent goddess, I feel it might be safe to say she's the rabbit form of Seket or Hathor. Osiris, yeah. That's yeah. A, yeah, Hathor is like the goddess of uh, fertility. And she, that's a woman and a lion, and it represents the serpent force. Yeah, the, the primordial sexual force of females. The power of the Kuti. Yeah. Which is the serpent that rises to the forehead and is the power of the pharaoh's power and nobility, magical strength, potency, all the rest of it. Yes. And so this goddess was a form of that. And in some form, she had a rabbit head. So there it is. Nothing new under the sun. Osiris takes the form of a rabbit because of all the reasons that Mari just said, because it's a ready sacrifice. And Osiris dies and is sacrificed and then is reborn. This was an apt symbol to use for Osiris. Here's the deal, though. So when he dies and is reborn, he's said to die and be reborn from noon, which is the primordial underworld. And it's kind of a place where the sun goes at night. It's a place where Osiris and Ra go to rest while they die and are waiting to be reborn. I feel like it's like limbo. Like people don't really know what's going on there, but they know like it'll end. But it's kind of peaceful. Yeah, because you know that it'll come to an end. It's just, it's kind of like taking a time out. Yeah, it's like everything has ended and now it's time to, yeah, it's totally like time to chill. It's before everything begins too. It's just outside mm -hmm. of, yeah, it's the, the abyss. So Right, exactly. The unknown. So one title of Osiris, and I hope I'm not getting this wrong, but I think it might even be in the Ritual of the Bornless one. I've heard it before, is Unefer, which is a rabbit. And that's the form that's sacrificed to the Nile, specifically. So it's weird, too, because rabbit represents life. So if you throw life into the abyss, will it create more life? Well, we're getting to that. So will it seed? Will it seed more? Here's the thing is the the hair itself in the hieroglyph is associated with that water, with that abyss. So you're definitely on to something. The hieroglyph un or unu un or unu depicts a hair placed over zigzaggy lines, which symbolize water yeah. and ideographically represent the verb to be or to exist. Ah. So actually, the hair was a fairly central part of ancient Egyptian conception of life in general. Very interesting. So water represents emotions, correct? So if you're feeling stuff and you have no boundaries, how do you know who's who and who's you? It's interesting that the hieroglyph depicts the rabbit above the water. Because mm -hmm. if you put a rabbit in water, I mean, you have this in the notes. It's like if you turn them upside down, they have this this reaction, like they'll, they'll stop breathing. They, they don't go in water. 
Well, they swim. Rabbits are good swimmers too. They are. They they want to get out. They want to get into the air. But it's interesting that, that these kind of put them together because what it depicts is your urge to get your head above water mm-hmm. is your urge to survive. Rabbits are a, a very core symbol of the urge for survival because they're they are prey animal for everybody, you know, to be to exist so, and a prey animal and they, to, to and to birds that were sacred to them, I'm sure. And they're sacrifices for us. So they're a typical sacrifice. So it's it's interesting that you that the that the Egyptians relate them to water because it's almost like they're struggling to breathe. That's their whole life. Is that's that's what they're doing. Yeah. So I it, and and it also represents a human struggling to get out of their emotional turmoil to make a good decision mm-hmm. because you're trying to keep your head above water. So mm-hmm. that's interesting. To be or to exist. That's crazy that the verb would be it, that. You know, that's like they're saying that about existence itself. That it's just it's it's yeah, it's struggling the, to the stay above the abyss. Is, right. It's trying to get out of it and like be safe as an individual person. So it represents yourself as an ego in a way because it 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 separates itself from the abyss, the water. It, it wants to kick and, and swim and survive and procreate. I, that's must be why Kubrick used it as a symbol in The Shining. So for there's further notes on this uh, about the Egyptian rabbit. When it is further described in the portion spell 17 of the Book of the Dead, which reads, who is he? Swallower of the myriads is his name, and he dwells in the lake of Wenet. To dwell in the lake of Wynette means to live renewed, revitalized, to be reborn, to live forever and ever. And this was associated with the god Atamra. Spell 17 goes on to identify the dweller in the lake of Wynette as Atamra, the creator of all, whose father is said to be Nun, because he rose out of the watery abyss. Uh, in spell 149, it describes the mound of Wynette. And this is where the spirit travels to be reborn and rejuvenated in the other world, or as they call it, the Duat. As for the mound of Wenet, which is in front of Rosetau, the breath is fire and the gods cannot get near it. The spirit cannot associate with it. There are four cobras on it whose names are destruction. O mound of Wenet, I am the greatest of spirits who are in you. I am among the imperishable stars who are in you, and I will not perish, nor will my name perish. O savior of a god, say the gods who are in the mound of Winnet. If you love me more than your gods, I will be with you forever. So it's a mound of like sacred creative energy in the Duat. And that's where you go to be rejuvenated in the other world before you are brought into the the outer world or the your life. The the overworld. <laughs> Whatever you call it. I don't know. The land. I don't know. I feel like the, the the more we go into all the different cultural symbols of this, it, the more it seems like this is a sacrifice of the of the victim. People who have been at the hands of evil and they give themselves, you know what I mean? Like it seems like they give themselves to be eaten as a sacrifice. And this is kind of like a description of like why that's important. It's a creative energy because even if you eat the rabbit as a sacrifice, even if you destroy it, there will still be more spring up. And that's why it's it's also associated with regeneration, not only just sacrificing for ritual or or a spiritual gain or even to eat as a physical reinforcement. But at the same time, all these gods are exalting the rabbit to the moon and trying to give honor to it in a way that it kind of says that they need to keep regenerating in order for life to go on because they are a prey animal. Like they provide life to other animals as well as themselves. Well, the moon's associated with water and water seeks this level and it always goes to the lowest possible place it can rest. Mm -hmm. So There's balance. There's a balance to it. And the, so the rabbit keeps the balance by staying on the bottom of the totem pole in some way. It, it's a willing victim. Which is bizarre because we have this association with the rabbit at Easter. And then it's like, oh, the rabbit is not Jesus. It's like, well, this uh, maybe the symbols go together in some weird way. I mean, he kind of is, isn't he? 
sacrificial lamb. This is sort of a big deal to his whole image, right? And it's what he's doing. He's a sacrifice for innocence. Lamb is also innocence because that's a young animal. And white. White is means virginal, inexperienced, young. So, yeah, you have a lot of associations with the young uh, the innocent, the people that they don't know any better. You need to protect them because they don't know any better. That's what a rabbit is. Protect them. They protect know not them. what they do. Right. And they, and they're constantly living in fear because they don't know how, how to defend themselves. They're a, that's why the white rabbit is such a potent image because it's, <laughs> you know, white means virginal. It means inexperienced. The, a baby, baby, basically a clean clean slate so when you when you invoke the image of a white rabbit it means somebody that's an innocent somebody who has no idea what's going on so it makes sense that they're prey they're constantly prey speaking of prey how you doing set i mean speaking of predators i mean speaking of i can't i can't talk straight you used to raise rabbits so did you ever throw rabbits in water i'm just curious uh no we never really threw rabbits in water (laughs) Um, they hate it yeah uh the most you really i mean you don't even really let them run around because you know they they'll get loose unless they you eat, go they eat cords yeah i mean they'll they'll make a big mess so normally you keep them in your hutch or your cage or your pen or whatever and then you if they're show rabbits you'll take them out and try to get them used to you and you know get them used to humans but socialized yeah I know you mentioned some strange things about rabbits. Like if you turn them upside down, they pass out or something. Oh, it was if you uh, if you cover their eyes and their ears, they don't have like object permanence. What does that so, mean? So, so object like birds do that too. When you put the hood over their cage, they can't see anything, so they can't react to it. Yeah. So object permanence is. Something that like children's children develop when they're like three or three to five. And it's the the idea that if something is like gone from your field of vision that you know that it still exists. Yeah. So it's even if you can't see something, you know that it's still there. Peekaboo is like the, the game for that. Is like you play peekaboo with little kids and they're so thrilled with it. Is that that is a way to teach them that. You're still there, but you just put your hands in front of your face. Well, I don't know. They're pretty young when they can do like the two walk in, one walk out, where the other one go trick. Like it's, yeah, right. But they're still learning at that stage. Yeah, yeah. you know, true. And then so rabbit, but rabbits don't have that. Is what Set is trying to say. Yeah. Real, so if you yeah if you cover their eyes and ears, nothing else exists to them. It's like they're sleeping. Uh, right. You know, so anything that was scaring them is no longer there. And they have this way – they have a an instinctual reaction where they they freeze. They freeze up when they're, they're faced with danger. It's that flight or, fight or flight, but mainly it's like uh, – for them, it's freezing or fleeing because, you know, well, some animals, if, they, if you freeze, they can't see you. Rabbits seem to freak out a lot more, like because deer have this too, but deer freeze. But rabbits kind of like flip the fuck out. I've seen uh, like my roommate had a rabbit and when I held him, he would freak out because he wasn't like sure about being next to a female. But like his legs would just go crazy. They just want to run. Yeah, that's they're in. It's embedded in them. That's why you don't let them down because they'll just they'll they'll run away. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. He was in the house. So that was good. But yeah, you got to have like a run or a hutch outside when you interact with them because they can like they can take off. They're totally in in tune with their um their emotional body so when their body senses fear they just fucking react mm-hmm. like they can't they just have a reaction they can't control it really so they have they're constantly under control of fear which is really interesting them being the sacrificial animal of choice because they're very they, they just kind of lay into it they'll just let you kill them but they also have sex for pleasure there's not all animals do that Dolphins do it. Dolphins do it. Monkeys do it. Primates, some primates, some apes. What about dogs? Mm, No, I would say so. Maybe a little bit. You don't think so? What about the dog that's always humping everybody's leg? Right, but I've had a rabbit that does that too. I guess that's, yeah, okay. Dogs do it for fun too. 
Because the rabbit that hated my boobs also wanted to hump my legs, so I don't... I just don't think rabbits care about human boobs the way we do. Well, he hit them. He was, like, afraid of my... (laughs) He had no concept of them. I guess it's because, like, my roommate is male, and, like, you know, they would... But this rabbit was messed up. Messed up rabbits would like your boobs. But... I mean, they can get messed up so easily, though, because they're, like, really sensitive. What and kind of rabbits think... don't like boobies? A lot of rabbits are really scratchy. He and... was the Cornish Rex. He didn't like the instability, I guess, but so scared when I, like, was holding him. And I was trying to, like, but they're so in tune with predators. They're so looking out for predators all the time that they can't interact sometimes. Like, they get, they're kind of dumb. <laughs> Yeah. Kind of stupid, dude. I mean, I would eat one, but you can't eat them all the time. So what's mm-hmm. this what's this in the notes about the rabbit pregnancy test? Can we talk about that? Oh, well, first, you you have a, also in your notes that you can't eat them all the time. Yeah, you rabbit can't you can't eat them all the time. No. So they're they're a they're a game animal and people like okay, if you're a pioneer, yeah, I'd fucking eat a rabbit, but you know, if you could get a ox or a cow or a chicken you'd probably eat that first but my roommate explained this to me is that if if you eat too much rabbit like if you eat rabbit exclusively if you just raise them and eat them you'll get a protein it's almost like you get poison from eating too much protein because they don't have fat on their Mm -hmm. muscle because they're so they're so lean because how much they run if you have rabbits that are like in a cage it's not as much of an issue because really? they're just sitting around all they day. They get fat, yeah, yeah. They get nice and fat, and but when you when you cook them, the the fat renders into the meat, and you don't have that deficiency issue. But if you're out in the wild, say if it's you know shit hit the fan situation, you couldn't live off. You of know, it. you'd be shooting rabbits and squirrels to eat. But if you eat just that exclusively, you're getting fast twitch muscle, which is a dark meat. It's a dark muscle. It's um, it's the part of the muscle that in, that burns the fat so you don't get you don't get any fat reserves you don't get any of that Mm -hmm. that good stuff that you get from like chickens or uh geese or ducks ducks have a lot of fat uh cat uh obviously pigs cows Mm, so you're not getting that fat injection with the protein so it kind of like solidifies in your body and you get almost a, like a poisoning reaction to it because you get like blocked up with too much protein mm-hmm. so you can't eat it all the time but it's a it, it is a game animal and you can't eat it for survival but you shouldn't just eat rabbits like try to eat other shit that makes and, sense and a lot of it's because you know how much humans need fat in order to survive right and the rabbits just burn it so if a wild rabbit would be skinny as heck like that's why hares are so good at surviving because they're bigger and they're skinnier and they burn fat better so what's with the pregnancy test yeah you gotta tell me okay this is so cool i found this out today when i was researching this is so neat okay so like um let me look this up. I feel like it was um when did this happen? This was in this was developed in 1931. This is a this is the original pregnancy test. So okay, girls that are listening. I'm sure no girls are listening, maybe a few. <laughs> but guys, also girls, when you have to like do the morning after bullshit that you all know about, and you go get the pregnancy test and you and then she has to piss on it, and you get the, you know, you get the little line and you're like, oh, I'm pregnant or you don't, this is rabbits are actually where this exact test was based. No way. And I was like, really like freaked out about this. This is so cool. Cause like rabbits are also a symbol of fertility. So this is really interesting that people used rabbits as a test for pregnancy. But how? This was like the 1930s when this was developed and they used to do it in rats and mice. What they would do is take the blood serum of a pregnant, a female that wanted to know she was pregnant. Like, what if they had a mishap or she got, you know, there was a tryst. There was a tryst. Okay. Right. <laughs> so she goes, shows, she goes to the doctor, they take her blood serum and then they inject it into an animal. So originally this was a mouse or a rat, but later they used, they started using rabbits. So they would inject your, your blood serum into the animal, the small animal. 
and the presence of the HCG hormone, human coronic gonatropin, HGC hormone, which is produced while you're pregnant. So if you inject, if you inject it, your blood or your plasma into an animal, their ovaries would enlarge. Whoa. If you were pregnant, because it would affect their endocrine system. And originally uh, mice were used, but now rabbits were used in the 30s for this. What would happen is um, they would inject the serum, the blood serum of the woman into the rabbit. And then a few days later, they would um, do a vivisection so they would kill the animal oh. and dissect it. A vivisection is when you and do it alive. A dissection is when you do it dead. Who knows what they did, dude? A vivisection is alive without anesthesia. I know, but I don't know if these people would have cared about that. <laughs> this is you know? making me sad. This isn't this is this isn't the fucking like thirties, okay? And until the forties it was like, you know, kind of considered not a good idea. Yeah, people weren't but even people back then. So whatever. I feel like this went on for a long time. This went on at least until we had the privacy tests, the the modern ones where you just piss on the strip and it and it works. But I, I was honestly hoping you you weren't gonna say that they pee pee on the rabbit, but I think that'd actually be better than injecting them with blood. I feel like it really would be. And then and because so they inject them, they they dissect them, and then they look at the ovaries of the rabbit. So if the rabbit had enlarged ovaries, it meant that the woman was pregnant Uh, and the error rate was less than 2%. So they continued to use this for a long time. That's incredibly effective. The term rabbit test was used in 1949. So into the 50s as a term to say that you would you would be taking a pregnancy test. And then if if you were pregnant, you would tell people that the rabbit died. We used toads for a while. I I don't know, but we didn't have to kill them, actually. That's when so. we figured out not to lick them. <laughs> They're like, oh, this worked for the pregnancy test and for tripping out. Look, it's a licks a toad. <laughs> oh, just listening to David Bowie. Just listening to China Girl on loop. Oh, yes. <laughs> I am in toad heaven. What now is there else to do besides eat carrots and shoot lasers? <laughs> <laughs>